Hello, and welcome to Equity and Motion, the CTED podcast, a podcast focused on the big and small questions of equity and innovation in transportation policy. I'm Dr. James Wood, Program Manager of CTED, that's the Center for Transportation Equity, Decisions, and Dollars, and I'll be the host of the podcast. Each episode will focus on a topic within the realm of transportation policy or infrastructure, and we will explore the issues from both an academic and community stakeholder perspective. And our returning guest today, making his second appearance on the podcast, is Dr. Anurag Pandey, and he's a professor of transportation engineering at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. He works in a broad range of technical topics. He works with traffic simulations, statistical analysis, big data analysis. But today we're here to talk about his growing interest in the teaching methods we use to employ transportation professionals. And that's engineering students, as well as urban planning students, and even sometimes the general public. He serves on CTED's executive committee and plays a key role in our education initiatives nationwide. So before we get started, I think it's important to point out that CTED is a First and foremost, it's, it's a research intensive institution. We receive federal funding and we work with state partners around the country to conduct primary research at research intensive universities, studies on topics mostly related to equity and policy. But we also have a secondary mission of education and community advancement. And that works with our university coursework, as well as K through 12 populations, working professionals, the general public. So although we're most visible on the research front, we do have an educational mission as well, because we believe as our federal sponsor does, that an informed public will lead to better and more equitable transportation policy. Also safer roads, uh, better decision-making policies, so all in all, it, it's vital to us to explore some of the ways that we do or do not teach concepts of transportation policy, transportation engineering. And I can think of no one better equipped to talk about those issues than Dr. Pandey. So welcome, Dr. Pandey. Thank you for appearing again. Thank you, James. I appreciate it. It is uh, always, always a pleasure to talk with you. Okay. So the first question that's maybe the boldest one is, what do you think needs to change in transportation education? Oh, where do I get started? This is, this is a good one. So for, for first and foremost, I think transportation education, transportation profession as a whole needs to become more diverse. We have to open the profession to communities, to, from, uh, to folks from communities that have traditionally not been part of it. And for that, we might have to open the profession up to non-engineers. There might be a lot of different fields that can contribute to uh, the profession of transportation. I think we have to come up with ideas that lead to more diverse workforce in transportation. The other thing is that as educators, because we serve that dual mission, you, you mentioned CTED, with its focus on research and, but still have the education mission as well. I think that is a thing that, that broadly 
more of the educators need to recognize that you are an R1 institution or a more teaching focused institution, where you, wherever you are, as educators, we have dual mission, we have to do research, but we also have to make sure that we are investing at least some time and some energy to become better teacher, to, to, to develop better pedagogy. So we are making sure that everybody who could contribute to the profession of transportation is able to contribute to the profession of transportation. And no one is being turned off because they had a teacher who was not as interested or, or something like that. So, so we wanna, so our teachers have to become, our professors have to become or improve their pedagogy and we have to make the profession more diverse. And I think those things sort of go hand in hand. And one, the other one that I would talk about here, the last one to me in terms of transportation education, I think we have to include more data science in our curriculum. We're trying to do that here at Cal Poly. And I'm not talking about having like one data science course. And that's one way of getting more data scientists or more and more more of data skills into the curriculum. One data science course is fine, but I think a better approach is to take our curriculum, whatever courses we teach in transportation planning, in urban planning and decision-making, transportation economics and analysis, public transportation, intelligent transportation systems, uh, microscopic simulation, all these courses that we teach here at Cal Poly, traffic engineering, to name one more, all these courses could benefit from having some exercises that make our students equipped with the skills that can help them deal with the data. Because in our profession, we're starting to collect a lot of data and knowing about the data is another thing that needs to change. I don't think the engineers that we have trained in the past, we as engineers were not trained in data science. And I think that needs to change for sure because we're collecting so much data now in our profession. We did write a paper on this back in 2019. It was 19-2630 at the Transportation Research Board annual meeting in 2019. It was big data and transportation workforce, the case challenges and opportunities for infusing undergraduate civil curriculum with big data analytics. So I would hope that folks will check that out, but this is something that we have to do throughout our institutions, all of our institutions. And I agree. I think. Another aspect of that is uh, incorporating and sort of moving in, in the reverse direction of the same concept. I would also say that a lot more courses at the university level, as well as in, in high school or community uh, workshops, there should also be more of an integration of transportation topics into fields that might traditionally not work with them. Uh, I come from a policy background, and my PhD program was mostly policy-based and social science-based, and I took a lot of coursework in gerontology and social work because my dissertation was on older adults and how they get around the community, or in many cases don't get around the community, and what that does to their health and wellness. And I remember taking several social work courses alongside nurses and psychologists and economists, people who understood what it meant to get old in, mm -hmm. in America, but the courses didn't have any connection to transportation. 
And I, as, as the one transportation planner in the group, kept having to raise my hand and say, it's nice that you have doctors that are affordable and housing that's affordable, but if older people can't get around their community to access these resources, they're not going to have a very healthy retirement. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, schools uh, for younger children, elementary schools, are implementing more walking school bus programs or, or outdoor programs to get children to walk more. Mm-hmm. But many American children live in neighborhoods that don't have sidewalks yes, or don't have safe roads to cross or painted crosswalks. So without that, that connection or even the simple acknowledgement that transportation touches all of our lives, no matter what we do or how much money we make or how old we are, uh, unless you live and work in your bed, like Jabba the Hutt, you use transportation in your daily life. And I would say that it, it, it's important also, in addition to the, the data literacy, as you mentioned, to encourage people from non-planning, non-engineering fields to understand how transportation touches their world. Uh, I think that's, that's an excellent point. I, I, in fact, we have a uh an open education resource grant that we just got from US Department of Education. It is being led by UT Arlington. And then we are part of it and also University of South Florida. And we are developing a resource where anybody who wants to pursue transportation as a profession, we are developing an open textbook resource that looks at all the prerequisite material that you might need to become so for example, what we're doing is that we are looking at our introduction to transportation engineering course, and we are finding, okay, what is the prerequisite knowledge that you need? And right now that knowledge is scattered in physics and math and statistics and economics, all these different fields and all these different textbooks. And we are bringing all of it together. And the goal is exactly that, so that we remove that barrier of somebody having to take these four, five, six prerequisite courses before they can be eligible to take that one transportation engineering course so that can, they can be equipped to deal with the challenges that all of us face, right? You know, we all use that transportation system. So, so, so I think removing barriers is, is, the, is the right way to go. And, and you, yeah, we're, we're, we're trying to focus our work on that. Um, and hopefully there will be fewer barriers moving forward for somebody trying to enter our profession. And in thinking about going beyond the university, you and I both work at universities and we're very happy to do so. Uh, But also I I think of community outreach programs, uh, for example, issues of safety or for transit, what they call travel training programs Mm -hmm. for people who are maybe new to a community or they're new to a mode of transit, like maybe they used to drive themselves, but they get older or they, they have an injury to where they can't drive for a while. So they have to start using transit for the first time in their lives. Mm-hmm. And in some communities, there's a very robust education to teach new riders how to ride transit. But in some places that, that's really lacking. Or if there's a safety improvement, like I know you've done research with uh, RCUT turns, which are a form of U-turn, or in many communities, they now have roundabouts and traffic circles where it's an adaptation to the system, which hopefully improves safety. But if the drivers are not shown how to use them properly, it can be quite hazardous or it can weigh down the efficiency improvements. 
So there's also this element of educating the general public uh, beyond the classroom. And I think that is part of the OER project that you mentioned. Uh, I'm loosely affiliated with it myself. And one of the things I like about it is that it's, it's open access, it's modular and it's accessible to anyone, like you said, anyone who wants to learn. They don't have to enroll in a 16 week graduate level course taught by an engineer. They can read an open source text. And if you as the instructor want to update the materials with the latest information or the news article or something, it's very easy to just drop the new information into the resource so people can have access to it immediately. And I, I really like this new flexible open access approach to education. Formal higher education as we have it gets more and more expensive every year and it can be inaccessible to many populations. Uh, I know in, in California and Texas, which both have some of the best public universities in the country, the systems are very popular, very crowded, and it, it can take a lot to get in the door as a university student. Yes. Or maybe someone doesn't wish to pursue a full degree. They just wanna learn how to use a traffic circle a little bit better. So I, I like this flexible approach to where we can get that information into the hands of everyday people while also improving education inside the classroom as well, which definitely needs to be an ongoing process. And absolutely, and, and these resources that we are creating, for example, they, they help us as well, right? So because we have folks who want to do a, a joint degree program between planning and engineering, and somebody who comes from purely from a planning background, some of those modules that we are creating could be useful to them as well. So we can actually enhance our own programs with these types of, these types of materials that we are developing. So that this provides a lot of benefits. And let's say if I create a module and, and my thinking is that if I'm creating a module, for example, I'm teaching the traffic safety class right now, my lectures, I'm all putting them on YouTube. You can find them, you can watch them. If you find them useful, that, that's, that's great. And the idea is that if you create these things, then it opens up opportunity for you to create some interesting pedagogical innovations as well in your own classroom. So for example, if my lectures are all video-based, I could very easily implement what we call a flipped classroom, right? And what is a flipped classroom? You don't do the homework at home. You do the homework in class and you actually do your learning at home. So basically somebody could watch my lectures online at home, wherever, but when they come to the class or any synchronous session, so let's, let's say we are going through COVID right now, but so we are not meeting in person, but whenever we have the synchronous session, where we're all together, we can actually work on homework problems and I can help them right away rather than them struggling for, for many, many hours on one simple thing. And I can have them do more and more and more problems because they're able to see, get the basic background outside of the classroom. And that flipped, uh, and there is evidence in the literature, in pedagogical literature, that finds that flipped classroom is very, very effective in making sure that our students learn. So, so all these resources that we create for the community actually benefit us because we are, uh, you know, because we are creating this good pedagogy. And, and so pedagogical innovations by faculty, I'm a huge fan of that. I think there is this misunderstanding among faculty sometimes that these good pedagogical things, they are, uh, you know, they're very time consuming. And sometimes they are, 
But there are things in good pedagogy, if you develop good pedagogy, it can actually save you time. So one example of that is like, you know, when we write good rubrics for grading lab assignments, right? When we write good rubrics, it makes one time we spend some time on developing that rubric. I found that I take much lower time in grading a lab or a lab essay if I have a rubric in place and I know exactly what I'm looking for. So rubric makes it easy for students to figure out what is the most important thing to learn from a particular assignment. And it makes it easy for me to grade it too. So we have to sometimes, somehow as faculty to learn that when we do good things, when we do good pedagogical stuff, it actually could be time saving rather than time consuming in, in the long run. And I, I think it, it's really important to fold those in and, and to get instructor feedback as well. Uh, there's one project that CTED has been trying to, to get off the ground. We've been delayed because of COVID. But one thing that we kept hearing from our faculty, at least at UT Arlington, was uh, integration of service learning, as well as, as you mentioned, rubrics and more, more flexible approaches. And so I, I know you've mentioned service learning as well as, as a growing area of interest. Uh, one thing that CTED has been trying to work with is uh, we found that many of our students, at least in planning, we didn't ask as much about engineering, maybe we should have, but at least for planning, we found that a lot of students wanted to do their service learning through an internship, which at UT Arlington, it's not required, but it is strongly encouraged that every planning master student take an internship. And so we created this program where we would not only work with the intern agency, the hiring agency to develop weekly progress reports and weekly rubrics on what they should be learning and how they should be applying their knowledge. But we also came up with a way to pay the students money. And it's, it's run through our scholarships program to where students in planning, when they seek an internship, most of the, the most interesting hands-on work, if you will, the juicy stuff is through nonprofits and small agencies that generally can't afford to pay interns. But at the same time, the larger agencies, the MPO or the state DOT or private firms, where the work is much more general, if you will, they can often afford to pay the interns. So you see this, this decision in the student's mind about maybe they're passionate about low-income housing or they're passionate about bicycle education, bicycle safety, but they need to pay their bills for the summer. So they have to reject the, the passion internship and go for the one that pays them money, which we, we wish they didn't have to make that decision. Sure. We think they should follow their passion and integrate their knowledge into it. So we're hoping to fund students who are going into those unpaid internships to say, if that's your passion, if that agency wants to work with you and you can nail down specific ways to learn on the job, then we will essentially give you a paycheck that the agency is not able to give you. And we're, we're yet to try this out. We launched it right before COVID hit and a lot of internships were canceled. Mm -hmm. But what do you think of something like that as, as far as a structured service learning? I think that that's a great idea, just coming up with ideas where students, because they have to do an internship and it's an academic require, if they're gonna do an internship, 
And whether or not it's an academic requirement or not, if they're going to work with an agency, I think that's an excellent example of the kind of community engagement that happens through C10. And I'm glad you mentioned service learning too, because that sort of is my other role on campus. So I actually one third of my time is, I, I use one third of my time, I, I get released for that time to do, to, to organize basically Cal Poly's service learning program, our community-based learning program. So, so I'm very passionate about service learning and this is something that I've done as early, started doing service learning in my course uh, of traffic safety as early as 2013. Uh, and I found that service learning is a great example. And I always looked at it when I started doing service learning as sort of this, uh, you know, a pedagogical approach that provide context to our students, right? At Cal Poly, we talk a lot about learn by doing. And I thought, yeah, service learning is another example of great example of learn by doing is that you work in the community, you learn what the needs are, and you are able to fulfill those needs. But as I've grown into service learning and I've looked at more literature, as I've interacted with more folks throughout the CSU or California State University system who do service learning, you know, what I've learned is that service learning is also, you know, working for those small agencies where they might not be as they might be resource uh, constrained, your student get, get an idea about sort of the inequities that exist in our society, right? So, the, so these service learning type opportunities also open up our students' mind towards, okay, wh what kind of inequities exist? Why do they exist? What are some of the ways of addressing those inequities? So service learning, not just, it's not just uh, sort of like a pedagogical tool that you can use your students to have some context or a real world problem, but it can also help your students learn about these, these topics, these broader societal topics that, that you want them to learn about. So, so I, I really like the idea of service learning. It has been something that I've been involved in. So I've been in this faculty director for service learning role for, for five years now. I find that you know, very, very meaningful. I, I learn about what different faculty at Cal Poly are doing with service learning. So as CETA takes the steps towards service learning, engaging our students and putting them out in the community, especially with agencies that are resource strapped, communities that are disadvantaged, I think that that's an excellent idea. I think this has benefits, not as I said, not just providing some context for their learning, but also uh, from a perspective of learning about inequities and how to address those inequities that exist. And I know uh, I did my dissertation research on nonprofits who sort of step in to fill transportation service gaps in mm -hmm. suburban neighborhoods where the bus doesn't run through that neighborhood, but the neighborhood still has people who can't drive. Mm -hmm. So nonprofits will sort of stitch together a, a replacement transit system. And it was really interesting work, but I, I found one of the key gaps, sort of what separates a small nonprofit from a solid, sustained, permanent nonprofit is the difference between passion, which they all have, they, they do that work because they care, and practical knowledge and, and skills, which they can often bring that in through interns or through young hires of students who just graduated. Most of the people who start a nonprofit, 
they, they don't come from that specific skill area. They're into it because they have an emotional connection to the topic. So if we can find a way to encourage students to, to lean into that and to either work for them or intern for them or volunteer, which volunteerism used to be a big part of our culture. It's, it's been curtailed in the past year, but those, those permanent relations, those long-term relations where if you live in a community, you have your workplace and the places where you shop and the place where you live, but maybe there's room in, in young people's lives to volunteer one evening a week with a nonprofit that they care about. And they can exchange their knowledge from a fresh university degree to help grow a nonprofit. And yeah, so both sides learn something. Yeah, I think this is this is a great example, right? Of city community partners, community university partnership that, that could happen. I think a lot of time if the the challenge that I've observed is that how do we fit the needs of the community or the community partner? And how do like so we do a lot of like sort of integrating the community needs and 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 their goals into our coursework. So sometimes the aligning those things into a 10-week quarter or a 15-week semester could be a challenge. But then you know you could sort of solve that challenge, or maybe let's say you do a service learning project in one of the courses, but then the community needs community needs still exist. So then that internship could be a great sort of uh, you know the next step in that collaborative partnership. So I think I, I really like that idea, like students volunteering and taking the, the work that they may have done as part of the coursework to the next level and share their expertise. Uh, but there is like, obviously there is a flip side to it, right? So, so when we talk about expertise and I think I'm as guilty of we are in academia, sometimes we could, we could run into an, uh, a nonprofit we need to go with an open mind when, when dealing with some of these issues. Sometimes we have this attitude as faculty members and, I, and I'm not absolving myself of the responsibility. I've had that happen to me as well, is that we go in and we have this almost like a savior complex that, hey, we have this technical know-how so we can solve all of, our pro all of your problems. But I think knowing, so I think they can bring in the community context and we can bring in the technical skills and it has to be that that collaborative partnership that sort of there is a give and take between the two two entities, and that that's what makes for a most meaningful partnership. And sometimes that requires trust building, and that happens over time. So we have to sort of start building those relationships as faculty members, as students uh, at universities, and and don't expect miracles miracles to happen within like one quarter or one semester. I think we have to as faculty build those relationships and then, then have our students sort of feed that relationship over time. And, and we could have students, multiple students over time that help out a particular nonprofit. But I think our faculty's role could be kind of nurturing that relationship over the long run where that collaborative trusting partnership can happen. And I think that's something we have to be, we have to be also cognizant of. And something that I think CTED can help with, or we, we hope to help with, is there's this old concept from the, I think it had its peak in the 1950s and the 1960s of the public intellectual, they used to call it, which we still have a few of them. We have people like Neil deGrasse Tyson or Henry Louis Gates 
or um, Cornell West, people who they're academics, they're, they're on a campus and they're a genius in their field, but they're also media savvy and they're, they go out into the community either on television or podcasts or maybe have a, a public gathering in town where people can just come and listen to a lecture or a talk on something relevant to the community. And I, I think we, we should encourage some of our people, especially our very junior faculty who are just moving to a new town and just getting set up to sort of take on that role and to say, you know, I, I'm a trained expert in whatever their topic may be, engineering or, or bridge building or public meetings, and to sort of build a lasting connection and establish themselves as an enduring resource in the community so that anytime a, a nonprofit or a small company has a question, they can know exactly who to talk to because universities are lots of big buildings full of very smart people, but it helps to have those person-to-person connections and, and that'll encourage them to be educators, not just to the people who pay tuition in the classroom, but to the general public as well. Because for many of us, the general public funded our education. I went to public schools that were paid for by taxpayers. Sure. So maybe part of my obligation is to then turn around and contribute that knowledge back to people. Yeah, and I think those types of like the connections that you make this way could actually be very rewarding as well. Like, you know, we've been engaged in, for example, with San Luis Obispo Council of Government. Engagement with them has allowed us to do some very, very interesting projects. So, so I feel like, you know, yes, definitely you start out by, by thinking about, okay, just, you know, I want to be able to give back, but I'm here to assure you that, you know, if you start doing that. So for example, I've done some, some local radio here, and just kind of talk about roundabouts and people are very skeptical of roundabouts and just kind of talking about roundabouts on a local radio show. And I enjoy those experiences, but what I found is that, you know, the connections you make through that can potentially be rewarding professionally as well. And yeah, so those things, and I enjoy the conversation and learning from the community and the issues that community is facing. I think those, those, the knowledge that you gain from that and the satisfaction that you gain from that could, could really be something, something really, really good and really rewarding. And to be realistic, I know many junior faculty are really worried about tenure and the focus is on their research portfolio and their teaching methodology and teaching portfolio. But service, I know it keeps getting pushed farther and farther off the agenda, but I think it's, it's a worthwhile investment for, for young scholars to make these contacts and not only get to know their community, but it helps to build rapport with people in the community and that you can have a professional network so that when you do have a research project or you need a guest speaker for your, your class, mm-hmm. you know who to talk to. So it, it is beneficial in addition to making you feel good about your work, which hopefully it does, it yeah. can help you be a better teacher, be a better researcher. And I, I hope that department chairs and and deans will be more open to that sort of connected service learning for faculty as well as students. And I hope so. And I think at Cal Poly, that is definitely the case. I think our, because we are still sort of teaching institution, we have a reputation as a a great teaching institution, certainly here in California. And 
so that sort of thing is in fact encouraged and and teaching is a learned art you know you do more of it you communicate with more people you get better at it you know i've been at it 13 years maybe listening to the podcast sort of contradicts that point if i'm not making my points very clearly but the idea is that if you do more of something if you do more of the communicating you get better at it and and i think our at least at cal poly if if you are a good teacher they our our administration is very supportive about uh you know faculty becoming good teacher and good communicators and anything they can demonstrate help them with that goal i think our 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 deans and our our department chairs are very supportive of it and because you know teaching is sort of still seen as primary institution i mean primary uh responsibility of the professors at this institution and once you are a good teacher i think the whole world is yours then you are then they provide you with the least time so so once you demonstrate that yes you are good with the classroom you're good with the communicating because you have established all those connections because you're so engaged in communicating your science to lay people for example or to broader san luis obispo community then then they allow you the resources for example i get a significant amount of release time from teaching because i'm so engaged with scholarship so but but again you have to demonstrate that by good teaching and i think all these communication examples that you talked about could really be uh you know could really help you with become a better teacher uh and and that that overall is to the good for yourself and for your students yeah absolutely and i i hope that programs like i know cted is launching a an educational rfp which normally we fund research rfps but this time we're looking for specific programs big ones as well as very small sort of workshop ideas to encourage people who who primarily chase research dollars to sort of take a pause and think about an educational output maybe a way to translate their knowledge into an open access textbook or a, a workshop in the evening so that maybe they can teach a new skill to bus drivers or taxi drivers or some non-traditional group and it it's encouraging them to stretch themselves a little bit but also to serve the public serve the community in a new way we're really hopeful that they're they're going to be able to find matching funds for that from their departments i know departments are always eager to give course releases and matching funds for research grants but a a teaching grant or a pedagogical grant might be a little bit different of a sell i i hope it goes well for our potential pis yes and i'm certainly excited about it i think there is i i hope there is some appetite in in faculty members throughout our our consortium that looks at this opportunity and says okay what can i do better in my classroom or how i can communicate my research and and i think that also has uh, one uh, one other thing that that get that will get emphasized through that is the technical transfer right so 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 you you develop these kind of workshops for communicating for pedagogy but as you do these types of communication projects i think these projects the education and training projects that you just mentioned the rfp that's still out and that's i believe that's due on may 28th if i recall correctly i'm so excited about it that i did review the the rfp that that it was issued and yeah i think this this can also help with tech transfer that i know is also one of the goals that ceted has been 
uh, very excited about. And basically our projects have been really good at, uh, at, at kind of doing those, some of those tech transfer things. And I think this education type proposal where the focus is on education and training could even, could, could even take our tech transfer activities to the next level as well. So yeah, I'm sure, I feel like at least at Cal Poly, there is a lot of interest in that. And I've even talked to some faculty at other CTED institution that are interested in pursuing like joint grants. So I feel like, yes, there would be, there would be interest and, and there, would be, there would be support uh, from, from our consortium members. Uh, I certainly hope so, but I, and I'm looking forward to to having some some contributions through through those uh, through those uh, you know through that grant program as well. Yeah, very much so. And I think it came about in part because we we found out we had extra money. Uh, we were not able to host a, a large national conference of our research team all over the country. We were going to bring them together, but because of the COVID lockdowns, we had money left over. So we decided to, with the sponsor's permission, spend it specifically on educational programs. And But at the same time, we also heard from a lot of PIs that individual departments are redoing their curricula, or mm -hmm. they're integrating these new concepts with issues of equity and racial justice and local government sort of being reinvigorated in the media. There's fresh interest in how we educate planners and how we educate social workers and engineers to help improve our society. So there's a lot of energy being put into restructuring individual courses and broader curricula. So we're hoping we can sort of lean into that and, and give people some resources to help contribute to that. And also that open access, as you mentioned, the OER grant is a huge new idea. It's new to us at least of low cost or even free textbooks because textbooks are normally very expensive, but yeah. this idea that you can have a modular innovative write up to date textbook for free, uh, it's really exciting idea. So I hope we can fund things like that. Yeah. And I think one thing that is exciting to me about this, this whole, you, you mentioned the curriculum restructuring and, uh, and, and what, what we can do with this grant. One thing that excites me about curriculum restructuring is that there's so much energy from our students on this. You know, they want to look at, hey, how are you integrating, you know, equity into civil engineering curriculum, for example. And, you know, we are civil engineering faculty members. And, you know, in some ways, you know, our profession is as conservative as it comes, right? So, so it's good to see students sort of driving that. Our students, our civil engineering students telling us that, hey, we need to see, we need to find ways to integrating equity in our curriculum. So one of the seated grants that, that got funded last cycle, I looking at equity, and we are working with uh, University of South Florida that is that that basically led that proposal. And, and they are so in that through that grant, what we are trying to do is trying to restructure our course on transportation economics and analysis and the course on sustainable mobility with an equity focus. So, and, and I've been able to use the energy that our students already had towards restructuring our whole civil engineering curriculum. And I'm able to recruit a couple of those students to see, hey, I have this project that I'm gonna start pretty soon. Do you have any interest in working on this project? And as soon as I send out that email, I get responses back that, hey, how can I get started? I don't even need to be paid to do this. You tell me how I can get started on redesigning 
couple of these graduate courses that we have and focus them on, refocus the content of those courses to be more equity focused. So that seems to me that our future is bright because our students are so gung-ho about equity and all these uh, issues traditionally are, at least on the engineering side, our profession has not been focused on. So yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited about uh, what happens with this education and training RFP and how we sort of restructure our curriculum where we are looking at equity as a, a key key driver of things. And hopefully things will, things will get better and, and we have to do a better job of making sure that equity is a key consideration in, in urban planning and engineering. Definitely, and I think it's a great opportunity to stretch our resources into a new area, but a vital area. Mm -hmm. And I'm really looking forward to the results. Hopefully we'll get plenty of interesting ideas. It's always a, a complicated process to look at all these ideas that come to you at once and, and to help decide which ideas can get funding. Usually we run out of money before we can fund everybody we like, but uh, it's fascinating to see how active people can be and, and the ideas they have. And we really hope we can live up to the E in our name equity. So I guess I'd like to wrap up with that. Uh, I know our listeners, if they're really interested in issues of equity, they can check out our website. That's CTED, C-T-E-D-D at U-T-A dot E-D-U. But I'd also encourage them to look at the equity issues being discussed in their local community with their, their city governments or counties or active nonprofits in the community, because there's only so much we at the university can tell you about your community. Most of that comes from your own neighborhoods. So hopefully people can be aware of these issues and take them to heart, find a way to contribute somehow. And uh, I'd like to thank Dr. Anurag Pandey from Cal Poly for his insights on education in and outside the classroom. It's always great to hear from him. And uh, Dr. Pandey, I believe listeners can find you on Twitter and your handle is at Polly, P-O-L-Y, Prof, P-R-O-F, Pandey, P-A-N-D-E. And that's all one word. And, James, yes. Okay. And uh, well, thank you very much, Dr. Pandey. And to our listeners, thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Thank you, James. Always a pleasure. Thanks.